turning to Luke today. In Luke chapter 19, we're going to close out the chapter. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 46 will be our main focus today. But it would be remiss if we uh, address this section without looking at the whole. I'm going to talk more about that in just a few moments. To set today up, I want to recap Luke's intention. So if you're new to the church, we've been in this series, and Luke makes it very clear what his intention is. He wants you to see Jesus. He wants you to see he, what he's actually like. He wants you un, to understand not only the works that Christ did, but the teaching that he did, the impact that it should have on our life. Luke wants to eliminate any confusion that you might have about the real Jesus. And that might be harder for you or for me, for any of us, than we realize because we can make caricatures of Jesus. Our daily perceptions of rulers, kings, masters, bosses, all of those things, all of those word pictures, all of those things you see in Scripture, including even our earthly fathers, we take our thoughts of them and we project them onto Jesus. And it could be just we speculate in all the wrong ways. We imagine all kinds of unbiblical things. But Luke tells us about what Jesus taught and what he did. And in fact, if you look at the book of Acts, Luke and Acts, again, written by Dr. Luke, Acts begins by telling us that his intention was to tell us all that Jesus did and all that Jesus taught. But it's not just that. It's that your life, yours and mine, our life, would be changed because of it. Well, for the last few weeks, we have been in chapter 19. And today we're going to close out that chapter. But to understand this last section that we're going to give attention to, we're going to look back at the whole. And if you've not heard the other messages, I encourage you to do so. The last three weeks have been in Luke 19. And then back in May, Pastor Brad launched us into Luke 19 uh, about the third week in May. Today's text, however, is from Palm Sunday, which Pastor Peter talked about last week. Now, if you remember, Palm Sunday, this is the, the, the last week of Christ's life before he's crucified on Friday. So all that we're looking at occurs from here through this particular week. Luke chapter 19. If you have your Bible, and if you're able... I want to ask you to stand to your feet in honor of the reading of God's Word. Now, as we read today, I'm going to pause a couple places. Uh, if you write in your Bible, I encourage you to do so or circle. Um, if you have an app, you can highlight that as well. But there's some specific emphasis I want you to see, and I want you to miss it. And when he, he's talking about Jesus here, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't typically speak that way. The reason why 
the English has it like this is because the translators are trying to convey the Greek emphasis here. All right? It's emphatic. He's basically saying, would that you on this no, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Although we're looking specifically at this last section of, of Palm Sunday, you and I can miss seeing Jesus fully if we lose sight of this section from the rest of chapter 19. What Luke's already told us, first, in the first part of the chapter, his encounter or his description of the encounter of Jesus with Zacchaeus. And then following that, a parable that of the minas. Or if you don't know what a mina is, if you remember, the mina is representation of the treasure of the gospel that is in the believer's heart. In both of those instances, Luke helps us to see that Jesus says and does things that are unexpected. And I want to spend some time today because this text also lends itself to that same thing. And I want you to see it in light of the whole as well as this one particular focus. Number one, Jesus, he offers compassion beyond comprehension. Over and again, Luke brings out that Jesus is simply better. Plain to the point, Luke wants you to see that Jesus is nothing short of remarkable. Jesus, as he comes to us, he comforts, but he also confronts us. Jesus hangs out with people that you might be uncomfortable with. And he has mercy on people that the rule-keeping religious crowd would typically despise and reject. He contrasts again and again the difference between what the self-righteous get against what those who... Uh, need the mercy of God, what God gives to them. In short, Jesus teaches and acts in ways that we find difficult to comprehend. He is compassionate. In the first part of, the ch- of chapter 19, if you have your Bible, you can look there. This compassion extends to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a notable person that any Jew, any self-respecting Jew would have absolutely despised. Few of us understand what level of revolt Zacchaeus' occupation brought. He was viewed as a traitor. He was wealthy 
And he got that way by aligning himself with the Roman occupational forces. He was an expert at extorting money from people through tax collecting. His wealth was built on taking more money from those who owed taxes than what they owed or what the Romans required. That's how the tax collectors got such a nasty reputation. He pocketed the excess. Zacchaeus did not pray for the weak and vulnerable. Zacchaeus prayed on the weak and vulnerable. He prayed on the wealthy as well. Yes, Zacchaeus was the guy that took food indirectly from babies' mouths. He had the power of the Romans behind him. Really, not a good guy. I cannot overstate it. He truly would have been despised. And few of us really understand Zacchaeus unless we've been Zacchaeus. We have a part of us that's like Zacchaeus. And what I don't want you to miss today, or if you are very familiar with the text, what I don't want you to miss or be reminded of is that when we look at Zacchaeus, we should see more than Zacchaeus and Jesus. Do you know the passage mentions another group? Those that were following Jesus. Do you remember what they did? Now, I'm going to go back and I'm going to read this passage of Scripture, the first seven verses, and I'm going to invite you to help me set the scene as it actually was. And so, no matter what auditorium you're sitting in this morning, when you see me point at you like this, it is your cue to say in the most disgusted way you can, oh, no. All right? So, we're going to practice. Here we go. You got it. All right, just pay attention. Stay with me a little bit longer. Chapter 19, verse 1. He, again, Jesus, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead. Climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he is about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry down and come, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Jesus is more compassionate than we are. Our grumbling does not keep Jesus from doing what we often will not. Jesus moves toward the sinner. When you're at your worst, Jesus moves toward you with compassion. People usually need love and mercy the most when they absolutely deserve it the least. Zacchaeus, the individual, he is not missed by Jesus, and neither are you. He sees you right where you are. 
He sees the part of you that wants to see Jesus, that longs to know, does God take notice of me? You may feel invisible, but you're not invisible to Jesus. Jesus is far more compassionate than we are with individuals. He's also far more compassionate with the masses. As Jesus approached Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, he is seen taking in the city. Likely the best view that you could have of Jerusalem, the holy city. And what does Jesus do? He cries. I don't know about you, but when I drive into Cincinnati, up 75, 71, and the cut of the hill as I start over the hill, I get a chance to see, for a medium-sized city, the skyline is second to none. It's pretty fantastic. But I don't cry. My heart and Jesus' heart are placed in contrast. And do you know when we look at the life of Jesus, we do see him crying. In fact, there are three occasions that the New Testament describes it in. John chapter 11, Jesus shows up at the, the, the grave of Lazarus, his friend, and we find Jesus crying there. Now, the word that's used in that particular instance from John 11 is a word that means to cry <clears throat> silently. It means that the tears welled up, choked up. Jesus was crying silently. Hebrews chapter 5 tells us that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications from the Garden of Gethsemane with loud crying and tears. Jesus was seeking his Father. He asked, if possible, if there was another way besides the cross, another way besides the scourging, another way besides the bearing of sin, was there another way? Anticipating a separation that in all eternity past, he had never known. Jesus is a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief, as Isaiah chapter 53 told that he would be. And then there's this in Luke 19. In this particular passage, when we see Jesus crying, the Greek word for wept means to wail aloud. Jesus is not choked up. He is sobbing loudly. Now, I've seen people wail. Maybe you have too. Grief overtook them. It leaves a mark. Luke says that Jesus wailed. But why? Why is Jesus wailing? Because Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is compassionate with individuals. Jesus is compassionate on the masses. And if you are not compassionate... You are not like Jesus. If people getting what they deserve kind of makes you satisfied, well, you stand in contrast to Jesus. If the phrase, he has made his bed and now let him lie in it, 
kind of makes you want to say, amen, you're not like Jesus. You may believe that real men don't cry, but Luke shows us that the real God-man does cry. We see him crying where sin's consequences are looming, where the ongoing rejection of himself is about to bear horrible fruit. Jesus tells us, death and destruction, it's coming. For the Jews who rejected him as Messiah, and for us as well, if we likewise reject him, it's coming. It's coming. Luke chapter 19, specifically this last part, Jesus says in verse 43, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up barricade around you and surround you and hem you on every side. Now remember here, this particular instance, we must look at this historically. He is talking to the Jewish people and the city of Jerusalem. Verse 44, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus said this on a Sunday, five days before the beginning of Passover. Forty years later, on a Tuesday of this same week, so think, day after tomorrow, plus 40 years. The Roman army under Titus, a future Caesar, began to level Jerusalem. The barricades had already been built. The city was already surrounded. There is no escape. Strategic towers had been built. They were in place. The onslaught began. Catapults with firebombs were launched. Battering rams were unleashed. The Jewish rebellion was crushed, and the city and its inhabitants were shown no mercy. Jesus, God in the flesh, prophesied it. And in it, we should see application for us also. Number two, Jesus offers warning to your wandering, wandering heart. Now, you may look at that, what's that all about? Yes, either one of those words will fit here. If you wander or if you just live your life wandering, both of those things apply. See, for this particular instance, for the Jewish people, the Romans seized the city in AD 70 and did exactly as Jesus had prophesied, utter desolation. The Roman historian Josephus tells us that roughly uh, one million people, were their lives were lost. About 97,000 were enslaved. When judgment comes, it is hard to fathom and even harder to look at. The moment of mercy, the windows of opportunity, they close. What is left is reckoning 
from indifference and or outright rejection. And I believe the text, all of chapter 19, there's three distinct warnings that can apply to any of us, any of us. First warning, there is a warning to those who grumble against God. A warning to those who grumble against God. Do you know that Jesus actually loves people that think and behave differently than you do? They look different than you do. They have different color hair than you do. They may have color of hair that's unfamiliar to you. They may have piercings that you don't have. They may have tattoos that you don't have. They may not have tattoos that you do have. They may be young. They may be old. Do you despise and look down on any of them? Do you know that Jesus loves people differently or different than you? Do you understand that Jesus loves people who interpret things differently than Grace Fellowship Church? Actually loves them. You and I might be the type of people that see a man in Zacchaeus that needs God's judgment. But Jesus sees a man who's going to be changed by God's grace. The foolish and the wayward, they're important to Jesus. Are they important to you? You might be prone to move away, judge and respect, and, and re, judge and reject certain people. And it's a temptation for any of us. But Jesus, when we look at him, over and again, Jesus purposes to move toward the sinner, and he does not care what other people think. He doesn't care to be misunderstood. So, Christian, I want to ask you just very personal, personally, a question that you should reckon with. I want you to ask yourself, is the trajectory of my life actually different because of my encounter with Jesus? As he has given me grace, does my life reflect a life of grace to other people? Do I have a trajectory of grace that characterizes me? And if it does not characterize you, do you actually see the grace that's visited you in Jesus Christ? Second warning. I see a warning to those that ignore the opportunity to be made right with God. You woke up looking for something today. You probably don't recognize that you were looking for this thing. Something more important than a Bengals victory. Or for those of you that I don't understand, a Steelers victory. I don't understand it. Nonetheless... You're looking for something. Your heart's longing for it. And it takes on different 
variances of what it looks like in your life. But the reality is, it's a perpetual state of the U2 song, U2 song from 1987. Do you know it? I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Boy, if I could sing like Bono, I'd sing it right now, all right? But in the lyric, great lyrics, Bono wrote, you broke the bonds and you loose the chains. Does that sound familiar? You broke the bonds, you loose the chains. You carried the cross of my shame. Oh, my shame. You know I believe it. You know the next word? But. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. We want something else. We desire Jesus to be our aid. We're not looking for him to be our king. He wants to reign in our lives. We want God to do something else. And we live unwilling to see and embrace that the peace that he offers us is a peace that comes through absolute and total surrender to Jesus Christ. That's how it comes. Down in verse 42 of chapter 19, Jesus says that you didn't see peace. You didn't see it. You didn't understand it. That, that terms of peace in 1942 looks back at Luke chapter 14. So if you have your Bible, flip back there. I want to I read this because the two, the, the, it's interpreted in two different ways, but it's the exact same phrase. Luke chapter 14, verses 31 and following. What king, Jesus was talking, what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he, has, he is able with 10,000 to meet with him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does, does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That seems like that does not connect. That last phrase doesn't connect with the prior phrase, but they do. Now this, the things that make for peace, and then in our chapter today, 19, verse 42, the time of visit, uh, or this uh, uh, uh the, the making of peace, these things are related as well as one more thing that's in this passage. It's the time of visitation. Now, stay with me. Time of visitation in Scripture has two connotations. Number one, it's a time of judgment. And the second one is a time of compassion and mercy. When Jesus talks about this in this particular piece of uh, uh, Luke chapter 19, he's talking about the latter, the time of compassion and mercy. Jesus comes with mercy. He comes to you with compassion. He is compassionate to the weak and the wayward. He's compassionate to those of you who have blown it royally. 
He is merciful to the sinner. But rejection has consequences. God will judge those that reject Christ. He is the only term of peace that we have. There's a third warning. And it's a sobering warning for me as a pastor. It should be a sobering warning to us as a church. It's a warning about distorting God, a warning to those that distort God. In chapter 19, verse 45, we find Jesus entering the temple area and driving out money changers and calls those working the system a den of robbers. He did this at the beginning of his ministry. So if you, you say like, well, didn't, well, I thought I, he already done this. Yes, the beginning and the launching of his ministry, Jesus enters the temple, turns over tables. This is a different occurrence. He's driving out the money changers. He's doing it again. He calls them a den of robbers. What kind of robbery is actually occurring? Now, you need to see the scene for what it is. This particular area, there was an area in the temple complex that non-Jewish people could come to who desired to worship. They weren't allowed any closer than that. And they assembled there. It's called the Court of Gentiles. And it was here that the religious rulers set up the money changers and their shops were there. Now, Jews who came in from foreign lands, they would have foreign currency and they would need to exchange their money, money changers from their foreign currency to the currency of Jerusalem so that they could buy sacrifice so that they get give money in tithes. It was here that these money changers set up shop. In a transaction in this place, one of the things that would happen is that they had worked the system to the place where you didn't have to have any personal interaction with your sacrifice. You just come, walk up to the table, throw down your money, money change, buy a sacrifice, walk away. The priest says, we'll take care of it from there. No personal touch to the sacrifice. Second, this currency exchange, money changing. One of the things that was happening, the money changers were making money on that process. And in so doing, they were distorting God, especially to the foreigners. In a place where the world is watching, they were witnessing the representatives of God distorting him. So outsiders got a view of a corrupt system, a corrupt religion, thus perceiving an unjust, distant, and uncaring God. So where do you fit in that equation? Do you recognize that the compassion of Jesus comes to seek and to save you? 
Because you need it. Or do you recognize that if you've distorted God, that he comes to you first with compassion and mercy to help you see Jesus, to be changed by seeing him for who he actually is? Do you have a distorted view of him? Jesus comes to set the view right. Do you recognize the urgency of the moment? Do you recognize that peace with God is available and you're called to it today? But ignoring it and just waiting and kicking the can down the road, eventually the window closes. Do you see that there is a time that you need to act and there is an urgency of Scripture that the time to act, the day of salvation, is actually today? Do you see that Jesus, as he has described 700 years even before his birth from the prophet Isaiah, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and there it is, Prince of Peace. He comes to bring you peace with God. Let me close with this. Before I was a pastor here at Grace Fellowship, I, uh, I worked for a home builder. I'm not going to name names. It's a local home builder, now um, a regional home builder across the eastern part of the United States. And I got to be a part of a division that was a startup part of this home builder that had an objective that the new offering would build affordable first-time buyer homes and first-time move-up buyer homes. And one of the things that we wanted to do was to have some fun with how things got communicated to the public and build some urgency because, frankly, there are times when there are limited options with homes and home sites. For years, builders and realtors have used the nomenclature for sale and sold to indicate the status of a home or home site. Again, notice I called a home site. Nobody wants to buy a lot. They're called home sites, all right? Anyways, we came up with a fresh way of communicating sold. Instead of saying sold, we used to put a sticker across the sign or in the window that said, too late, it's mine. I love taking pictures of new homeowners holding those signs. They'd buy the the home, the home site. I'd take them out. We'd put a a sticker on. They'd hold it, and they'd have it. They'd come back, and I saw them years later. They have that still have that picture. But I tell you, for all the smiles that came with those pictures, I had other encounters where people did not believe me or my sales team. They had passed, and they came back. And they frankly got hot. I remember one particular one. I'll tell this story quickly. I am, I am take this couple out to a home site with my sales uh, 
person, and we're looking at it. We walked the site, showed them where the, the house would sit. And I said to them that this home site is kind of unique in the fact that it's in the edge of a cul-de-sac. There's only so many of those. You like little traffic. You don't have any drive-through traffic here. And frankly, I don't know how long this will be here, likely not through the weekend, because it's just been released. I'll never forget. The woman snickered and rolled her eyes at me, all right? So I have just enough pride in me to say, like, that bothered me, all right? And so it let it pass. They passed. They left. Later that same day, took another couple out, went on the home site. This couple says to me, Well, I figure if we're looking at this, somebody else is, we're going to take it right now. They took it. The next day, the first couple comes back. The guy comes in, says, we've decided we want to move forward with the contract. I said, I'm sorry, it's gone. He just stands there, stares at me. And I didn't know what that meant. He goes back to the car. I can see his wife in the car. She went apoplectic. If you don't know what that means, you should go look it up. All right? All right? Gets up, comes into the home. So she just doesn't believe it. Doesn't believe it. And frankly, they left in tears. Other buyers, they act. They don't live in this perpetual state that I still haven't found what I'm looking for. See, our enemy, the devil, he actually has strategy that he uses on all of us. You hear of some of it, you may know of it. There is the strategy of there's no God, everything's here by chance. The strategy of there's no evil, there's no right or wrong. There's no devil, there's no real embodied evil. There's no heaven, no hell, no afterlife. And if there is a God, he is surely merciful. And I'm going to be okay. I'm doing my best. But that's not the big lie. The big lie that many of us believe across many areas of our life is there's no hurry. There's no urgency. There's no need to act today. You can think about it a little bit longer. I want to strongly encourage you to stop believing that lie. The day of salvation is today. The path of peace is found in a person, Jesus Christ, who's ready to receive those who repent And trust him today. Turn your eyes to him. See the wonder of a God who comes to you, weeps with you, offers you a peace to you when you surrender to him. Let's pray together. Father, you are mighty to save. Our being sorry for our sin is not what you're after. You tell us to repent. You want us to surrender. You want us to 
to know the peace that passes understanding in the one place where it can be found in your son, Jesus. Lord, there are people in this room today who need an encounter with your compassionate. They're hurting and they're longing for you, oh, to take notice of them. Call them by name and draw them to yourself. Give them in this room right now faith in Christ who paid for their sins. Give them your spirit. Invade our hearts with peace. Give us all repentance where we distort you. O Lord, sanctify us in truth. Your word, Lord, is truth. Do that now in Jesus' name.